You're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Jack Thurston and this is The Bike Show. Now, next time you're down the pub having a drink and somebody casually drops into conversation the fact that they've just cycled around the world, be sure to ask them which route they took. Because there's certainly more than one way to cycle around the world. And for the next two editions of The Bike Show there's going to be an extended interview with Alistair Humphreys, a man who's cycled around the world in what you could describe as the hard way. I think Alistair has defined the classic route of cycling around the world through 60 countries, taking four years and covering 46,000 miles. His second book, Thunder and Sunshine, which follows the uh, second half of his ride, is just out. I met up with him on a sunny evening in Richmond Park and asked him what made his route around the world so unique. Yeah, there certainly are plenty of people who cycle around the world, right back to Thomas Stevens in the 1880s, who's the first guy to do it on his penny farthing. But then also, if you look on the internet for people who've cycled around the world, you can find someone who's cycled a bit in, a bit in Europe, a bit in India and a a bit in Mexico and, and tied them up with flights and call that round the world and and I, w- I wanted something that was a bit more clear cut and um, you couldn't really argue with whether or not it was around the world so I decided to try and cycle the length of the three big land masses and then by connecting them together that would also make a, a pretty watertight circumnavigation. Well, we're standing at Roehampton Gate in Richmond Park uh, which has four sides and we're going to attempt to take you on Alistair's route around the world, um, roughly aligning each side of Richmond Park with um, an epic leg of your journey. Uh, so I hope, hopefully, having listened to the next half hour on the bike show, you'll never see your training ride at Richmond Park in the same way. So talk us through the, um, the first leg before we set off. The first leg of my journey was meant to be from England to Australia, but the September 11th attacks happened when I was just two weeks into my ride so then all my planning, all my preparation, everything went out the window and suddenly my, my carefully planned scenic route through Afghanistan didn't seem like such a fun idea anymore so I got to, I rode across Europe to Istanbul and there in Istanbul I had to have a complete rethink of my route. Okay well let's, uh, let's get going to Istanbul. Now you've written a book about your journey, you've written two books actually, the second book has just come out and at the start of the book you explain that it was all about a bet you made in a pub and that's what got you off riding around the world. Now I know that that is the kind of thing that someone who's writing a book just sort of comes up with, (laughs) there's no way it could have been the bet, there must have been something in you that that made you want to do this not just the fact that you had a few drinks and made a bet and then decided to go through with it you're right it wasn't so much a bet and then and then feeling honor bound to have four years of misery to to honor my bet it was more a case of i came up with the plan and i had the dream of doing this big trip but but there's so many reasons not to do a journey like that a real life gets in the way and it's easy to make excuses and or just to procrastinate so i felt that by just telling all my friends that this is what I was going to do then I was actually committed and that and then I set myself a departure date and 
those two things combined meant that really I just had to go on and at least begin it and beginning turned out to be the the hardest part of the whole trip really there's there's this huge inertia and fear of the unknown that you that I really struggle to uh to fight and to overcome um and I felt that once I was actually on the road that the hardest part would be over you were pretty young yeah I was well, still pretty young <laughs> I was I was 24 I just I was just coming up to the end of my time at university and I felt it was the perfect time really I'd, I had no no ties no commitment no mortgage no wife no dog and I felt if I didn't do it then I'd never do it and uh I, I didn't have very much money, but I felt that if I um, hung around until I did have enough money, then uh, real life would have taken over and I probably would never have started. So I thought the best thing was just to, just to get going, really. And what was that first day like, first day in the saddle? Can you remember it? Yeah, I can remember it vividly. The first day was probably, it was probably the worst day of my life, which <laughs> either means it was a very bad day or it means I've had a very good life. Um, but it was it was horrible. I was I was really terrified, and just the the looming I saw this looming sense of what I was getting myself into suddenly suddenly hit me, and I wasn't running away from anything. So it was not like I was unhappy at home. I was very happy with everything I had, and I was giving it all up for the unknown of this stupid bike ride around the world. And uh, on the day I set off, everything suddenly seemed very precious and. And where did you sleep that first night? I left from my mum and dad's house in Yorkshire and I rode each day to a different friend's house down through England. So the first night was down in Cheshire, down near Manchester. Um, and I tried to ease myself in gently, but I ended up actually doing 80 miles the first day. Um, and I wasn't particularly fit when I started, so it was a pretty, pretty painful start. And when did you feel like you were hitting your stride. When did you kind of relax into it and feel like I've got I've got a rhythm now and 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 this is this is something that I'm potentially going to enjoy. I I really oscillated massively for, for for about two years really. The first couple of years I was I was alternating between being wildly excited by the freedom of it all um, and then the downside of freedom and solitude is also the loneliness and the boredom and, uh, and then I'd get really down and verge on giving up so I think I'm quite different to most cycle tourers um, certainly most of the ones I met were, were just clear cut about this was exactly what they wanted to be doing and they were entirely happy with what they were doing but I, I was uh, I'd never really spent any time on my own before I quickly realised I wasn't that interesting a person to spend time with so I got pretty bored. I think also the fact that I'd set myself such a big project, this, this uh, four-year challenge, the, the enormity of it uh, meant that I found it harder to enjoy each day. And it took me quite a long time to get into the hang of just, think, just enjoying things day by day rather than panicking about the massiveness of what lay ahead of me. And what was your route across Europe towards uh, Istanbul? I took the the, uh, the ferry from Dover to Calais, and then headed to through Luxembourg to Germany, where I met the uh, the River Danube near or in Regensburg, and then it was pretty easy. I just followed the Danube right the way until the Black Sea in Bulgaria. So downhill all the way uh, through 
through Eastern Europe, um, and that was a beautiful ride. It's it was one of the best rides of the whole trip. Actually, there's a bike path the whole way alongside the river, nice and flat. Lots of uh, cake shops, but unfortunately, I was on such a budget I couldn't eat the cakes. But I definitely want to go back one day and ride the Danube again. What sort What sort of budget were you on? When I set off, my worldly wealth was seven thousand pounds worth of saved up student loans and I just didn't know how long the trip was going to take so I knew £7,000 probably wasn't enough however long my trip was going to be so I just had to begin with this ridiculously miserly attitude it helps being a Yorkshireman for that I guess but um, but that certainly didn't really add to my cheerfulness either when I was I got through Africa on a dollar a day which was a it was pretty depressing to do um, but I guess well the majority of Africa do that for their daily life so I can't really complain too much, but a cut being a sort of softy Westerner, I found it pretty tough. You arrived in Istanbul and then you had to make a decision. The way forward just seemed a bit too uncertain, riding on towards Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Because this was in just after September 11th in 2001, right? Yeah, this, so this was... September 11th happened when I was in, in Germany. I was riding along the Danube and it was pouring with rain. And I didn't even hear about September 11th until about, I think it was the 13th of September. Um, so even in, even in Western Europe, you, you can be pretty isolated on your bike if it's pouring with rain and no one's around. Uh, so yeah, from, from Istanbul, I had to come up with a new route. I felt I couldn't really go forwards. A big part of me just wanted to use this as a good excuse to give up the whole stupid idea and go home with my pride intact. I also wanted to carry on, so I, so I had to look into all sorts of different options and the one that I ended up going with was to, to head for Africa um, which I, was completely unplanned but in my more upbeat moments I thought that that was exactly the sort of adventure that, that I wanted and, and the exact sort of spontaneity that, that I was dreaming of having. I guess things must have been pretty different as soon as you left Europe behind. You, you must have been seen as really much more other than you were in Europe. I mean, of course, as people riding bikes, we are always, to a certain extent, other. But heading into the Middle East, you must have looked a very strange sight on your, on your bicycle. Yeah, it's quite interesting that the further you travel away from home, if you cycle from here now, for the first few days, everything's quite normal. And heading across Europe, everything's quite normal. But the further you pedal, the stranger things become. But on that same note, the further you pedal, the stranger you become to the people who see you every day. So an English guy cycling through Europe is a pretty common occurrence, but as soon as you get into the Middle East, especially post-September the 11th, then, then suddenly you become a, a circus show, a freak show, a comedy act, a source of charity, and a source of general hilarity for, for locals everywhere. So. Yeah, once I got to the Middle East is when it really started to feel adventurous. And, and although that should mean it was more difficult, it actually meant it became more fun and exciting. And uh, people started responding to me. And the Middle East is where I first experienced the massive generosity of people that you meet when you're, when you're traveling by bike. And people just were so kind and welcoming. And it was, it was, it was a really eye-opening time, actually. Um, I'd headed into the Middle East terrified about what might happen to me and actually the only, the only way, the only way you're gonna, I was ever going to die in the Middle East was from 
overfeeding from the incredible the hospitality of people I met everywhere. And then into Africa, what were you thinking? You know, what were your expectations of Africa? Had you been there before at all in your life? I had actually. Um, when I left school, I went to South Africa for a year and I, I taught in a, in a little village school. And I'd absolutely loved it. And that had been my first experience really of uh, any culture away from my own. So it had opened my eyes and that was, what, that was when I got my first love of traveling really. So I'd always held South Africa very dear in my heart, so I was really looking forward to getting back to Africa. You've got a lot of Africa to cover before you get to South Africa, if you start in Egypt, right? Yeah, there's a long, long way to go. And I also had a lot of preconceptions about Africa and about my safety and um, how difficult it would be. Yeah, I was pretty, pretty nervous as I began Africa and pretty daunted and fairly certain that I wasn't going to make it through Africa. Um, but not that I'd die, but just that I'd give up. So I was pretty full of doubt when I began it. Because people say that there's a kind of corridor of three countries, I suppose, Sudan, Congo and Angola, which connected our pretty impenetrable wall of fighting, uh, crime, hostility, disease, you know, hunger, you name it. To get from the top of Africa to the bottom, you have to go through one of those three countries. And it's, I guess it's like voting for a politician. You, you hold your nose, whoever you vote for. And it would have been a difficult choice, except Congo refused me a visa and Angola refused me a visa. So I had to go to Sudan. They were the only ones who would give me a visa. Um, and I was very, really worried about Sudan, the civil war there. Um, I was really worried about my safety. And, and also it was a huge desert I had to cross. And I was very worried about that. Um, but as, as was so often the case on my trip, that the place I'd worried about most turned out to be the the friendliest, kindest, and the Sudanese were just incredibly fun, friendly, generous people, and it was a huge highlight of my rides coming through Sudan. What were the roads like? From the Egyptian border all the way to the capital Khartoum, there's no road at all, and that was about three weeks worth of cycling or and walking through sand, pushing the bike through the desert, pulling it through sand dunes. So it's physically really tough, but. But that was when I really started to think, wow, this is, this is the adventure I left home for. And, uh, and, I, and I absolutely loved riding through Sudan. It was, it was everything I'd hoped it would be. We're just uh, cantering a little bit of a rough corner of uh, Richmond Park here. I imagine nowhere near as rough as a sand dune in the, in the Sahara. So let's talk a little bit about the practicalities of the bicycle that you were riding, what you were having to carry how you were spending the night. I had a fairly average bike, it was a, a steel, no suspension mountain bike, cost about 400 pounds. And I, I just wanted something that was strong and simple and wouldn't break. And onto that, I fixed the front panniers and back panniers, uh, loaded them up with camping gear, cooking equipment, spare parts, tools, but really the bare minimum for everything. And food, I just have to get as and when I could, so, which was generally every few days in Africa, you'd reach a village and 
buy just whatever happened to be available. What about water? And water again was a constant hassle really because it's so vital and yet so heavy. Quite hard in terms of discussing with locals how far it was to the next source of water because for people that people don't really have distances in terms of kilometers or hours and if they do then they've never been on a bike so they don't know how long it would take on a bike so that became quite an art form trying to interpret people's opinions as to how far it was to the next bit of water the most i had to carry was about 17 liters which is pretty heavy on my bike well that's 17 kilos which is you know pretty heavy touring load you know anyway with tents and and sleeping bags and all the rest of it yeah it's there's two problems is one is it's very heavy and the other is it's very bulky so it takes up loads of space so i had a, um, a 10 liter bag that filled up with water and then i had a few bike bottles and also just a couple of big plastic coke bottles that i'd fill up and just shove under the bungees on the back of my bike now i have to confess ever since i started doing more than a few days riding on a bicycle i had a dream to ride a route close to the Great Rift Valley. Is that the route that you followed? The Rift Valley, I suppose, originally it began up in the Middle East in Jordan with the Dead Sea. So I came down through there, through Egypt, through Sudan, into Ethiopia, um, and from there into Kenya and Tanzania, which is classic Rift Valley uh, territory. And, uh, and, and that's the real, I suppose, the cliched view of Africa is what you get in East Africa. The big open grasslands, the incredible sunsets, the uh, Maasai men in their magnificent robes with their spears. And, and so to be cycling through that sort of thing that you've seen so often in your life on TV felt, felt quite surreal really, but, but also really exciting. And, uh, and although I was finding it hard, there was always a, I always had a sense of privilege that I, and disbelief really. I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm actually out here on my own in the middle of Africa and not only am I surviving I'm thriving and I feel safe and I feel welcome and and I've cycled all this way from home and and so that, that was quite an upbeat time of the journey really. It doesn't seem like it would feel safe why does it feel safe and when did you realize that that things weren't as dangerous as you might have thought? I think it was the Middle East and then Sudan both of which you don't really imagine as being bastions of safety and friendly people but I realized in those places um, and everywhere really that 99% of the world are nice normal people like everyone around us here we don't feel worried now so if you don't worry here then why should you worry in another place and I and I just felt the hospitality and the kindness and cars stopping and giving me water and people waving and the real curiosity whenever I got to villages people were really eager to find out about my trip and uh, but almost always in a in a very positive way so I felt very safe amongst people and and then also as I I spent so much time camping on my own I became very uh, confident at that and and I realized that if you're in the middle of some strange country and if nobody sees you run off the road into some bushes then nobody in the entire planet knows you're hidden in there and you can't really be any safer than that wild places and the night time started to become allies and friends rather than the fearful objects that they're they're generally perceived to be and what about um wild creatures that might sniff you out it would be a very brave wild creature to sniff me out after a to several months of pedalling with not many showers. Um, 
the biggest animal worry really was dogs and that that was true all around the world of dogs vicious evil untrained wild dogs everywhere almost every country in the world they just love chasing cyclists and trying to bite a chunk uh, so dogs were pretty scary and and I worried about things like mosquitoes for the risk of malaria and I worried about snakes and spiders and scorpions because I'm scared of them but I actually hardly ever saw any but the big scary animals of Africa you know the lions and elephants and crocodiles unfortunately they only really exist in the big game parks so for the rest of Africa there sadly really isn't any risk from them so that was never a huge danger and by far the biggest danger of well of my whole trip really was cars lunatics driving cars uh, are often really crazy drivers with very very dangerous vehicles that was easily the biggest worry of my trip really so down to the tip of Africa down to Cape Town you must have felt as though you know you'd done your first major landmass your continent how did you summon up the enthusiasm to kind of do it all again up the Americas that's a really good question because it was a it was a massive difficulty really uh, getting to the end of Africa was everything I'd been dreaming of and working towards for a year and so to get there was just a huge triumph really it was amazing but then getting to an end just throws you right back to a new beginning really so from there I it was then right back at stage one and I found it mentally really hard to uh, to galvanize myself to carry on and there uh, a good chunk of me thought I'd ridden through Africa that was a perfectly good adventure in itself I could go home and get on with something else and I would have experienced everything that I don't think anyone would have held it against you that you know <laughs> no and actually by this time I'd finally got over caring about what other people felt but it did take me quite a while and I and I think it's true if I'd come home then I would have had a perfectly amazing adventure and it would have been fine but the rule I had was that I was only allowed to quit if I had anything better to do with my life. And Wait, where are you gonna find something better to do when you're on the road 12 hours a day? Well, that's what I was constantly looking for and I never found anything better, which was why I made it round in the end. So how did you get yourself across the Atlantic? Getting across the Atlantic is actually quite a good way of re-motivating myself because I, I spent quite a lot of time in Cape Town trying to find a, a yacht across the Atlantic. And I went on a, a a talk radio show in Cape Town and and they were great they they said to me what 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 do you need from Cape Town and I said oh I need my bike fixing I need places to stay I need a yacht across the Atlantic all these sort of things I needed and people just phoned in and provided them it was astonishing wow the yacht didn't come quite as easily as that but certainly from it came good contacts and then I just had to uh, I started working at Cape Town Yacht Club just making myself useful pulling up ropes scrubbing decks just proving that I'd be useful really and and from that I managed to wangle a, a free berth on a yacht. And so that took you to Brazil? Yeah, the, that, the yacht went from Cape Town to Rio in a transatlantic race which was fantastic uh, but the problem was that that then left me in Rio whereas I wanted to do the full length of the continent so I, I then had to decide what was more important to me to carry on the, the sort of continual purity of my ride by just pedaling on away from Rio up towards Alaska which would have been quite fun to do or whether I was willing to compromise and jump on a bus 
to take me down to the very bottom so that I could turn around and start riding back up again. Well, you could have ridden down. <laughs> I could have ridden down, <laughs> but I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> so I got on it and I couldn't find a boat either. So I got on a bus which took five and a half days non-stop to go all the way down. And then it took me six months to ride back up at the same distance. So I, so I began riding right down at Ushuaia, which is the most southerly town in the world at the bottom of Tierra del Fuego, which is the island just off the bottom of South America, southern Patagonia. And I did find it quite hard to get the motivation, but it was, Patagonia was such a wild and beautiful area and so perfect for biking that, that I quickly got fired up and enthusiastic again. And this is the starting point of the second volume of your, of your travel uh, account in the book that's just out. And it does sound like a really hard continent, South America. I mean, harder and harder and harder as you go up and up and up, right? Yeah, South America was um, physically really hard, but I think it's probably the... Uh, in many ways the best place of if you wanted to just go cycle one continent because it was physically stunning and the variety although that's what makes it hard was really exciting and rewarding um, the people are quite friendly and the cultures wasn't too different from uh, Europe so how is your Spanish? Uh, muy bien well I'd done GCSE Spanish beforehand which is enough for muddling along a bit and then but then I had about a year of riding up through South America. So, so by the end of that, it was, it was perfectly adequate. And that certainly makes life a lot simpler when you can talk to people and make friends. And, uh, and yeah, that, that's a big advantage when you can speak the language. And it's one of the general regrets of my trip, I suppose, is that just by the very nature of it, most places I went, I couldn't speak the language. And, and therefore, you miss out on so much. And so I was very impressed with a passage in your book where you're describing oh, going book? across uh, Bolivia and you're not in the bits of Bolivia that, you know, the tourists go to. You're in a place that just seems like a kind of empty, high-altitude desert hell, really. Well, that's the image that you convey. Yeah, well, it's a pretty grim and bleak existence for a lot of people in the, the highlands of Bolivia. It's freezing cold, it's completely dry, there's very few roads or towns or villages and for the people who live there it's very very hard. If you drive through it on a bus as uh, most tourists will do just going from one destination to the next then it's a, it would seem like a beautiful bit of wilderness but to cycle through it um, was really tough. It was freezing cold. It was windy, and it was quite grinding just from the just experiencing the the poverty of the the people who lived in those areas. So, I mean, what kind of interactions did you have with the the people up there when you're you know asking them for some help or some water or or, or a bit of shelter? It was always really positive, and I I, I only ever got whenever I asked uh, for help regarding somewhere to sleep. I was only turned away once in the world, and that was in uh, Austria, in Europe. So, a place like South America, the worst that would ever happen is they'd say, yeah, sure, you can put your tent up here, which is all I really wanted, just to be somewhere safe. But more often than not, you get taken into the house and fed and looked after. And, and I'd always try and emphasize that I didn't want any food, and I didn't need anything, but uh, because the people were generally so poor, but they were, 
would always ignore me and feed me and uh, it's quite a hard thing because in terms of knowing whether to pay people or not because if I offered money 99% of the time people would be offended and not want it and yet I felt bad being a rich person taking food or shelter from these people but uh, I suppose the only justification to myself is the people that were voluntarily offering it and seemed to just really enjoy a bit of variety in their lives of this freak from England with the funny bike and the big hair sleeping in their house and uh, people seemed to really enjoy that and I certainly really enjoyed it and I, I got gained so much from it not just the food or something but just the company I suppose as much as anything. Did you think a lot while you were turning the wheels about the inequalities of the world and the conditions that these people were in and, and why that might be? Yeah a lot of the time it was, uh, it was, such, it was just so glaringly unfair really um, that the vast majority of my trip was at, through areas that were of people who were far, far poorer than me and people who would never, ever be able to do what I was doing. Even, yeah, they just simply could never, ever have the freedom, whether that's the cash or the, uh, the political freedom to, to travel. And I, I did find it hard to come to terms with and hard to justify in my and Did it change your worldview at all? I suppose it did, in, but not in a hugely positive way. My my impressions of people's personalities and and this, the general good nature changed in a positive way, but my young idealistic hopes of changing the world got pretty dented. Um, seeing a lot of evidence of people who try to make change and without a great deal of success. So I, I don't think I'm quite an old cynic, but but I'm certainly certainly no longer such a shining young idealist. I was in conversation with Alistair Humphreys and to find out how he got on in North America and Asia, you can tune into The Bike Show next week. Until then, thanks for listening and chapeau.